Uh, my name is Casey Reyes. I get to help out with women's ministries. It's the best. Um, today we are going to be reading from 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 to 21. If you have a blue Bible under your seat, it's page 163. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to the king to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There, is, there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. This is God's word. You may be seated. Am I on? Yeah. Hey, I'm on. Uh, okay, let's. If you're visiting today, I'm actually Josh Watt, <laughs> and uh, we just use the picture of the cute guy to get you to come. But uh, no, my name is Sandy Mason. I'm a native. Anybody here a native of Arizona? Yeah, we should get something free for that, right? We should get a license plate or how to be some perk for having Valley Fever in our lungs all these years. Uh, I'm uh, so excited to be here. I love. Josh and Aubrey and their family. He and I had a connection when I was still pastoring up in the North Valley, and he was praying about where God wanted him to launch, and we got together and just had a, 
immediate connection. So it's been really fun now that I'm kind of pastoring the pastors of redemption at large and uh, was thrilled when he said, Sandy, would you come do this long passage that I don't want to preach today on uh, 1 Kings 8. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you that you are here. That's our great hope, that you are the God who is uh, present right here with this little humble gathering, even as you are the one sustaining uh, the universe. I don't understand, I can't conceive of how awesome and huge you are, and yet you, you care about the likes of us. As David said in the psalm, what is man that you are mindful of him? But here you are, and you've promised it, and Jesus has confirmed it by his death and resurrection that your word is true. So minister to us, would you, Lord Jesus, as we let your word do its work. To the greatness of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah, this is an amazing thing that uh, for 2,000 years this has been happening. I mean, there's just not that many things that have been happening for 2,000 years, but since the resurrection of Jesus, Christians have been gathering through the decades and the centuries, and now here we are, we're still doing this. And there's no explanation except that Jesus said, I will build my church. Yeah. So he's doing it, and he can't be stopped. He said, even hell itself can't stop me. Thank goodness, because we've had some goofy leadership in the church, if you've read any church history. Uh, <laughs> We've had every opportunity to kill this thing and mess it up and have it not work, but Jesus keeps building his church, keeps raising up uh, godly men and women to lead and gather, and so here you all are. So you're, you're part of something that's miraculous and remarkable where we don't think a lot about it, but you know, nobody passed the uh, temple of Caesar on their way in today, did you? You know, there's a lot of things that have just gone by the wayside that thought they would last forever. But here, this wonderful gathering in the name of Jesus Christ, we're here. We're in uh, 1 Kings 8. If you've brought a Bible and want to follow along, make sure I'm not making stuff up. Uh, 1 Kings 8 is where we're going to hang out. Josh has been taking you through uh, the king's story. And so you've got these three kings. You've got Saul, and uh, he had all the physical attributes, but lacked the, the character, the courage to be a, a king. Then there was David, man, David, warrior, poet, but had a, a problem with uh, lustful appetites, and he loved uh, war, and uh, was a lousy father, and had a costly experience as a king. And now we have Solomon. So Solomon is now the high watermark of the kings of Israel. There will never be a king as big, as great, as well-known as Solomon. Even today, you can mention the name Solomon to people, and they may never have gone to church, but they associate Solomon with someone who was really wise or smart or a great king. Probably don't even remember Israel's king, but they've heard Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon, because he made his mark. Remember, that's what he, he asked God. He said, God, if I'm going to be king of this nation, I'm, I'm pretty young and inexperienced, would you give me wisdom? And God said, because you were humble enough to ask for that, I'm going to give you everything else. And so uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to see movies when we get on the other side, but I, I'd love to some way experience the glory of Solomon's reign. What was it like? The, the armies, the chariots, the gardens, the architecture. Uh, 
so much so that a, a queen from the other side of the world said, I've got to go hear this guy, Queen of Sheba. Uh, it's there in the book. You can read it another time. But uh, he, this was a remarkable time. Uh, I don't want to ruin the ending for you, but uh, things are not going to go well for Solomon. And that's one of the things I, I love about this book, the Bible. You know, if the, if the Bible was just a man-made book written by self-righteous religious guys that wanted to tell you how to shape up, we wouldn't see all the flaws. But the Bible just lays them out there. All these men, Saul, David, Solomon, are flawed men. And it's costly to them. It's costly to the people they lead. And yet, and yet, and that's the glory of the biblical story, God keeps doing his work. In fact, at one of the worst times in the life of David, when he should be out at war and instead is uh, walking around the castle kind of taking in all the glory of his reign and sees a beautiful woman and in his lust decides, I must have her in that dark time where he slept with Bathsheba and then orchestrated the death of her husband. I mean, it's horrific sin. In, out of that union with Bathsheba comes Solomon. And so it's as if God says, even when man is at his worst, I can do my best. And of course, the life of Jesus, the crucifixion, was clearly man's worst, and God will do his best. And so it's true with you. So the hope of the gospel and the hope of Christ of being in church today is not that you will finally shape up so God can do something, but even in spite of yourself, when you are really blowing it, Christ is still at work. He who began this good work in you will finish it. Isn't that a great hope? Because if it's all up to you and me, then gosh, let's just go to the bar because it, <laughs> it ain't happening, right? It ain't happening. Can you say bar in church? <laughs> all right. So my title for this is that it's always all about God. The Bible is always trying to get us to look and think about God. And today I, I want to expand the, the marvelous character of God in your heart and mind. That would be a great joy for me if, if you walked out with a little bigger view of the glory of God and yet his strong desire to walk with you. In fact, that's my first point. I've got such great people back there on the screen that my first point will pop up any moment here. Uh, there it is. I mean, they don't pay him much, coffee and donuts, you know? It's, God is and he wants to be known. That's the first thing. If you have uh, 1 Kings 8 in front of you, uh, as the text was read, Solomon's assembling all of Israel, is establishing his reign. He's going to build a temple. David wanted to build a temple, but God said, David, there's just too much blood on your hands, but I love your heart, and your son Solomon will build it. So Solomon now has built the temple. It's a big deal. Israel's had tabernacles, you know, that little kind of unimpressive little tent thing that God gave them to use, but now they're getting a building. 
kind of like this precious church. You know, you, you're, you're making it work here and, and what was outfitted for another church that moved on, but you all have in your heart, I know maybe one day we'll have our own place, you know, where we, we don't have to set up stuff every week and we can own it, do what we want with it. Well, the Israel is in a place of finally, we've got our temple, our landmark, our uh, statement to the nations that our God is and we're his people and this is where you come to worship him. So Solomon, they bring the ark in to the place and uh, look at verse 10 of 1 Kings 8. In verse 10, it happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God dwells, the Bible says, in uh, inexpressible light. You cannot stand to be in his presence. It would would consume you. His glory is too much. It's so pure. There's so much light to it. Only these unique beings, these angels like the cherubim who have a special role around the throne, they're the only ones who can stand to be in the presence of God. His glory is magnificent. Moses will say to God, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, I love that you want to see my glory, but you can't take it. So he puts him in a a little cave, a cleft in a rock, and, and puts him there and says, in essence, Moses, I'll show you my backside, which meant I'm just going to give you a little glimpse because you couldn't handle me full power, but I'll give you kind of like a shadow of me, and that was enough to just blow Moses' mind what he saw there. But that's, I want you to think about that. This God, who is right now uh, maintaining your heartbeat and orchestrating what the Hubble telescope is bringing back to us of, of birthing more stars and planets and solar systems, I mean, it's mind-blowing. People ask, well, you know, uh, when we die and go to heaven, will there still be 7-Elevens? Have you seen what's out there? Do Do you ever wonder why we have Star Wars and Star Trek in our imagination? It just makes me wonder. Is that just a seed of what's to come? Paul said, you have no idea. It hasn't entered your heart what God has prepared for those who love him. But it's more than a great 7-Eleven, I assure you. (laughs) So this God, this big glorious God, condescends to this dusty little piece of real estate in the Middle East with these ornery little difficult stiff-necked people to come into their little temple. I mean, in the perspective of how big he is, and he's going to put his glory, you know, like take his little finger and kind of dip it in there. Why would he do that? Because this great, glorious God wants you to know him. He wants to be with his people, and it's not easy to do because he's just too much. And if that wasn't the case, then you wouldn't believe this book. In fact, all the man-made religions make God very accessible and weird. Have you been to India? Have you seen the caricatures of the gods they have? They're elephants with multiple heads and trunks and legs. I mean, it's just sad. 
The God of the Bible is a God that lives in such power and glory he has to hide himself all the time. So even here, he comes in a cloud. The cloud is to, to diffuse the awesomeness of his glory. And yet it's still too much. Look at the, the priest can't even stand to be in there. It's, it's too much. It's like taking the sun, the glory and power of the sun, and you want to put it into a light bulb. That light bulb is going to blow. But that's what he's doing. Why does he do that? Because he wants to be with his people. He wants you to know him. That's what he wants. One of my favorite verses, I hope you can uh, jump around with me if you brought a Bible. It's a good exercise. And you can impress the person next to you that you actually know where these books are. Uh, Exodus 34. God is giving Moses the tablets. And, uh, and then the Lord does something really remarkable. And this statement about the Lord will show up seven other times in the Old Testament. But to appreciate what we're going to read, this is God describing himself. So the Bible's full of others describing God, and you've heard preachers like me and others tell you what God is like, but uh, here's God. When he has his moment with Moses, which he knows will be recorded for us for generations in his word, here's what God says about himself. This awesome, powerful God that is so glorious, we, we couldn't stand in his presence, so powerful, sustaining macro and micro life all at once. Here's what this God says about himself. The Lord descended in a cloud, verse 5 again, having to diffuse, cover the full glory, descended in a cloud, stood there with Moses as Moses called on his name. And then verse 6, the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed. Here's what he said. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. The first two things that God wants Moses to know, wants you to know about him. Not, I'm awesome, I'm powerful, I'm holy, I'm just. Those are all great attributes of God, all true. But when God has his moment, to say, here's who I am, his first words are compassionate and gracious. Let that soak in, dear one. This big, awesome, powerful creator God wants you to not be afraid to approach him. That's what he's saying. Don't be afraid of me. You should. Proverbs 1, you don't get smart till you fear God, till you recognize who you're dealing with. But with that, know this awesome, holy unexplainable God is compassionate and wants you to come to him. Wow. Gracious. Look, slow to anger. Abounding in loving kindness and truth. That word loving kindness, uh, all acknowledgement to the translators, that's a lame word. Do you ever use that word? At the end of a letter, you ever put in loving kindness. I mean, we, 
we just don't use that word. It's the Hebrew word chesed. You've got to spit in the back of your throat when you say it. chesed. It, it means a loyal love. It means a love that says, I'm in, come hell or high water. It's kind of like when a husband and wife make their vows, those great old vows, you know, in sickness and in health, and richer or poor. That's chesed love. That's love that says, I'm not in this only in the good times. I'm not in this only when you're so lovable or you do what I want. I'm in. That's what God is saying about himself. My love is a covenant love. It's a promise-keeping love. If I put my love on you, you can't shake it. You can't run from it. You can't send yourself away from it. I will not let you go because I'm committed. It's not you. It's me. I'm a God who keeps my promises. Isn't that amazing? When God has a chance to speak about himself, the first thing he wants you to know is, come to me, I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, I won't be angry, I'm slow to anger, my love is a committed love. If you are my child, if you love my son Christ, you are mine, and my love will never let you go. Oh, what a God we have. He wants to be known. Hebrews 11.6, I'll just tell you this one, don't have to turn there. Uh, Hebrews 11.6, what is faith? Because without faith, the writer says you can't please him. That's the thing he wants. He wants faith. Well, what is it? Well, it's going to take about 14 pages, so get your pencil out. No, it all fits in one verse. The faith that pleases God is simply this. Believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. Is that wonderful? That's faith. Not show that you're keeping all the commandments. No. Believe that he is and he rewards those who seek him. He wants to be known. He wants to be found. He wants to be pursued. What a God we have. What a God. Here's how Paul put it uh, in the, the book of Acts. This is, this is really good. So Paul the apostle is preaching in uh, Athens. Anybody been to Athens, done the Greek tour and get to Mars Hill? They show you this is probably the area where Paul preached, and there were all these, these idols and statues to various gods. The Greeks prided themselves on, you know, we know all the gods and we know about them. And so Paul <clears throat> finds an idol, a monument to the unknown god. They acknowledge there might be a god out there we haven't figured out yet. Paul says, hey, I, that's the one I want to talk about. And here's what he says about God. The God, this is uh, Acts 17.24. The God who made the world and all things in it, he's the creator, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. See, and we see that. He, he can't fit in that temple. That, it's like Solomon. That's a great temple, but I really can't fit in that. I don't dwell in buildings. The universe cannot contain me. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So God is the one who's given you your life and breath right now. It's his gift to you. He's sustaining life. And listen to this. He made from one man every nation. Oh my goodness, Paul, you believe in Genesis 1? You don't think that's a fairy tale? Evidently not. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live all on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times, you are living now according to the appointment of God, this was his plan, and the boundaries of their habitation. He wanted you here in Phoenix at this time in history. Amazing. 
Why? That they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of our own poets have said, we are all his children. So what's Paul saying? God has set up life in the generation so that people would look at creation and say, someone must have made this. Let's, let's seek him, because he wants to be known. This glorious, big, awesome, holy, powerful God wants to be known by you. Is that astounding? Meditate on that. Don't get over that. This God wants to be known by you. Paul will write in Philippians 3, my passion is to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. You say, well, Paul, you know Christ. I mean, you, you had an amazing, miraculous encounter with him on the Damascus Road. You've been preaching for him. You've, he's done miracles for you. You know Christ, but he wants to know more. What he's saying is there's so much more to know. In fact, when we get on the other side, we'll continue to pursue who is God and Christ in their glory, in their bigness. It, it, it's going to be an awesome thing. Now, without all the encumbrance of sin, what a wonderful thing to think about. But God wants to be known. That's why the greatest condemnation from the lips of Jesus was to those people who were convinced that they had earned his attention because they were doing religious things. They even uh, manufactured some miracles and did say, said, look what all these things we've done in your name. And he said, you know, I'm sorry, I don't know you. I don't know you. Uh, and the truth of the Bible is that you can't know him. He comes for you. He comes for you. If he didn't do that, we're without hope. But the story of the Bible is that God pursues you. All, all the characters in the Bible, they're pursued by him or we're without hope. And when he finds you and showers you with his love and you know it, who here has experienced that amazing love of having your heart filled by Jesus? Isn't it? It's the sweetest thing in the world. And you can't make it happen. He just does it. And sometimes, like my buddy Rob here, he does it at our worst point. Doesn't he, brother? Yeah. I just brought him in so I could use him as an illustration. <laughs> he doesn't really go to church here. But that's, that's our God. He wants to be known. He wants to be known. All right, the second great truth. We're back in uh, 1 Kings 8. So Solomon is dedicating this temple, and it's a big deal. They finally have their own uh, place where they can say, this is where we come to worship God. And, and place matters, and people need place. And God understands that. So he, he goes along with this. Not that the temple could ever contain him, but he, he understands people need a place to go. That's why your home matters. It, there's, there's history there. There's memories there. And the Israelites are going to have history and memories with their worship of God here. And God knows he made us like that, to, that place is important. And so he says, all right, let's go ahead and, and build this temple. And what the rest of the chapter is, is Solomon praying to God. Praying to God that uh, he would hear their prayer here it is. Look with me if you're in a chapter 8 of 1 Kings. Verse 25. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep the promise you made to my father David. Keep it to me. 
that there will always be someone to sit on the throne. And may your sons take heed to the way you want them to walk before you. Now therefore, verse 26, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed which you've spoken to your servant, my father David. And so he goes on to give this great prayer. In verse 28 he says, Have regard for the prayer of your servant. O God, listen to the cry and prayer. The, the whole Bible is really a story about people praying. It's about Noah praying to God. About what do you, what do you mean you want me to build this boat? No one's even seen rain here. What are you talking about? It's, it's Abraham praying to God about what do you mean you want me to give you my son? You just gave us a promise. It's Moses praying to God about how am I going to get these people out of Egypt? And how are we going to get... It's just full of prayers. It's Hannah. God, won't you give me a child? And now protect me and my child. It, it's just the Psalter is basically prayers to God. The Bible is full of prayers. That's what God's people do. They pray. But the truth of prayer is that there's some mystery to prayer. There is some mystery to prayer. It's his chosen means, but the longer I walk with God, the more I see I can't explain everything about it. Look with me in verse 28 and 30. Have regard for the prayer of your servant to his supplication, O Lord. Listen to the cry which your servant that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, that you would uh, listen to the prayers which we have prayed to you. And then as he goes on with the praying, jump over to uh, verse 57. He's coming to the end of the prayer. The prayer is full of, Lord, we're not going to keep these commands. We're going to be unfaithful, and you're going to let an army take over, or you're going to send a drought or a plague, and we're going to repent. And when we repent, would you forgive us? That's a whole other message. We'll come back to that in a moment. But right now, Solomon's giving this great prayer. God, I'm interceding for the people. Would you hear our cries when we blow it? Would you respond? And then he says in verse 57, May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us. It's great that that was Jesus' last words to the disciples in Matthew. Uh, I'll never leave you or forsake you. God is faithful to not forsake us even when we're unfaithful. May he incline our hearts to himself. Do you see that, verse 58? God, may you move our hearts to be inclined toward you. It says, Solomon recognizes, if you don't do that work, Lord, I'm going to drift. So incline my heart to you that I would walk in your ways and keep your commandments, not just me, but all our people. Be near to us, maintain the cause of your servant. So here's the mystery for me. Solomon is praying. He's the smartest man God's ever put on the planet. He gave him a depth of understanding about God and spiritual things and psychology, and uh, he, he studied it all, he knows it all. In fact, it's interesting, you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's kind of Solomon is kind of a burnt-out king now, and it's a, got a little bit of jadedness to it, but also some real insight. And he's, he's done it all, tasted it all, pursued it all. Uh, but right now he's praying, God, keep my heart inclined to you. And do you know what's going to happen? He's going to make all these political alliances. That's how you did it in those days. If you wanted peace with your neighbors, you made an alliance, and the alliance was sealed with a marriage. And so the king would send over a daughter, and that, that's why he had all these wives. And then he had concubines on top of all the wines. The guy had a sexual appetite, and uh, that ruined him. That ruined him. In the book of Deuteronomy, God told Moses, now, 
don't go marry people who don't believe in me. They'll take you away. Oh, no, oh, no, they won't do that. Well, over and over they do, don't they? And that's what happens to Solomon. Solomon, the smartest man who ever lived, the guy who gets it, the guy who's praying, God, don't let that happen, and that's what happens. So you've got to ask the question, why didn't God answer his prayer and just keep his heart true to God? I have asked that question. That's the mystery of prayer. When I came to Christ, uh, it was dramatic for me. The Lord uh, filled me in a way that I just suddenly realized, wow, you're it, it's all about you, and I'm yours. So I called my girlfriend, uh, my girlfriend Margie. Uh, And uh, at first it was like, what are you talking about? You're not a Muslim or a Jew, you are a Christian. So I... That was Sunday. I'm just talking to her about Jesus, and she's getting the message, if I'm not into this Jesus thing, then I think our relationship's over. It's Thursday morning in her dorm room, about 3 in the morning, and I'm giving her all my biblical wisdom. I knew John 3.16 in this little four-law track. That's all I did back and forth. She takes this picture of her dad, and her dad uh, was like a guy that Jimmy Stewart ought to make a movie of his life if he's still around it. Just this humble guy from Iowa that wanted to serve his country and fly. And so he ended up flying jets at the end of World War II, flew uh, Korea and Vietnam. In fact, we have a Newsweek, the cover of a Newsweek magazine that has uh, pilot Homer Hansen who flew the first 100 missions over Korea. Now he's a two-star general. He's got a picture with all the regalia. The guy's a stud, right? This is her dad. What am I? Dumb little frat boy. And uh, a speech major. What the heck am I going to do with that? So she grabs the picture and says to me, so you're telling me, and she was a little sarcastic at this point, so you're telling me if this man doesn't pray to receive Christ like you did, you go to heaven and he doesn't? How? That was a heavy one. By the grace of God, I simply said, Margie, I'm not saying that, but that's what the Bible says. And right before my eyes, friends, the Holy Spirit just came on Margie and she just started to weep. And all the anger and all the intellectual objections, all that stuff just melted. And she said, well, how do I become a Christian? I said, have you not been listening to me for four days? I've told you exactly what to do. Why have you been so hard? No. So Margie comes to Christ and is now my wife of 46 years. You guys, right? you've met her. She really exists. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> You're my neighbors. You've met her. Come. Uh, then I call uh, my parents, and then I call my best friend, uh, John Lynch, and John Lynch is off campus now smoking dope and hoping to be a stand-up comedian in L.A., and that didn't happen, but he thought, why would you get Jesus? That's dumb. That's for losers that need a crutch, and he blew me off. Two years later, I'm at seminary. He calls me in the middle of the night. You know that little pamphlet you gave me, that four-law deal? I prayed that. I think something happened. <laughs> and, uh, and now he's a preacher and writer and speaks, and uh, so here's what happened. I thought, you know, hey, if you want somebody to come to Christ, talk to me, because girlfriend in four days, my best friend in two years, I mean, I well, now 40 years down the road, like that was encouragement to me, but it's not that easy. 
I've got loved ones I've been praying not for four days, for 40 years, some of them. Friends. Issues that I thought, Lord, you would deal with physical suffering of friends. That I prayed, God, why won't you intervene? There is mystery in prayer, absolutely. And we've got we to own that. And it makes me angry when there's ministries out there that say, if you'll just say this prayer right, if you'll just do this, then God's obligated. No, he's not. He's God. He's got the big picture. You and I do not have the big picture, do we? Anybody remember taking your kids to the doctor to get a shot? I'll never forget taking our firstborn Josh. I don't know how old he was, five or six or something. He had to get some shot. We come to the doctor's office. We don't tell him he's getting a shot, right? We just say, hey, we've got to do a little checkup. Okay, and we're both there for some reason. And you know how it works. The nurse comes in, and she's got that little silver tray with the syringe sitting there, you know. Josh takes one look at that syringe, and he bolts out of the exam room. <laughs> I have to chase him. He, he runs out to the you know, the lobby where all the parents and their kids are, and here's this screaming little guy, and I'm like, don't worry, we're not torturing him back there, it's going to be okay. Uh, he just looked at us like, what are you doing to me? I thought you loved me. What do you bring me in here and let some woman stab me? But we knew that needle, what was in there was life for him. And that's what God's doing with me all the time. I'm saying, God, why are you doing this? Why'd you take this? Why'd you allow this? Because I don't understand. And so that's why prayer, there's mystery to it, and it's a discipline. There's days when I have to just say, okay, I'm going to pray. I'm a little frustrated, I'm hurt, I don't get it, but I'm going to keep bringing it to you, and that's what he wants. Remember Hebrews 11? What's faith? Believe that I am and that I will hear your prayer, Sandy. But you don't have the whole picture. It's interesting that two of the most famous prayers in the New Testament by two powerhouse people, Jesus and the Apostle Paul, and they're both prayers that God does not answer the way they want. Jesus in Gethsemane, Paul with his thorn. In both cases, the Father had to say, you don't have the whole picture. Trust me. He may be saying that to you, dear one, today. You don't have the whole picture. He understands your hurt. It's confusing why. Why aren't you breaking through? Why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you turning that heart? But you don't have the whole picture. Hang on to the first truth. This big, awesome God wants you to know him. And he's working. He's working. Oh, I forgot my slide. Oh, let's bring that up. Look at that. Oh, 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 that is the right response. Yes, that's my three-year-old granddaughter, Heidi, and she's driving the boat at Bartlett Lake. She's driving the boat. You can do all kinds of illegal stuff out on the lake because no one's looking. <laughs> you know, I remember when I was a, a younger guy with just kids at home and I'd see somebody's bumper sticker, you know, ask me about my grandkids. I thought, how stupid. What's the big deal with grandkids? Now I'm that guy. Gosh, I love my little granddaughter. So she's three, and we have this sweet connection. What, what do I want Heidi to know about me? I want her to know my heart. I want her to know that I love her, that I would give her, if she was in need, if she needed a, an eye or a liver or whatever she needed, I will give it to her. 
because I want God's best for her. I want her to know that she is safe with Papa. Just like that picture, I want her to know that she can just laugh like I'm driving the boat because Papa's really here and nothing bad's going to happen. That's what I want her to know. And as I thought about that, where did I get that? Where, it's, it's kind of the purest love I've tasted. I think it's the image of God in me. I think that's how God thinks about you. He wants you to know, I really love you. You are safe with me. I want you to trust me. That's what I want Heidi. I don't want to ever, ever lose that. I don't want to do anything where she would not trust me. That she would know I, I love her. That's what God wants for you, dear one. And that's why you keep praying, even when it seems like it's hitting the ceiling. Keep praying. Keep pursuing. Uh, she's a blast. Bartlett Lake. You been to Bartlett Lake? It's kind of a little best kept secret around here. Go to Bartlett Lake. All right, how are we doing on time? Good. We're here at about 2.30. You knew that when you came in. No, we're doing great. All right. God is and he wants to be known. Prayer is the vehicle of our relationship, but it's a mystery, and sometimes we just have to do it as a discipline because we don't feel like it, but we believe what he's told us about himself, so we keep praying. And thirdly, obedience is the evidence of my faith. All through 1 Kings 8, Solomon will pray, God, the people are going to blow it, and you're going to send an invading army, or you're going to send a drought, or you're going to send a plague, and they're going to face their sin, and when they repent, please forgive us and restore us. So obedience is not about you will never blow it. The key to obedience is repentance repentance, that you are willing to turn when God shows you your sin and say, you're right, God. I thought this was the best for me. It's not. Your way's better. That's repentance. That's the difference between David and Saul. Saul couldn't repent, couldn't own his sin, always blamed others. David owned his stuff, didn't he? Did some terrible things and lived in denial for a little while, but finally he would face his sin and then you say, God, do with me what you will, because I, I know I can trust you. So obedience is the right response and the evidence of real repentance. Jesus said like this, John 14, 21. He who loves me and keeps my commandments, or no, he's how, I'm sorry, I'll get it right. Don't look, I'll tell anybody. <laughs> he who keeps my commandments, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by the Father, and I will love him, and we will show ourselves to him. So some people take that and go, oh, so it's legalism, it's works. I have to obey God, and God looks at my spiritual report card. If I'm obeying good enough, then he'll reveal himself to me. No. What Jesus is saying is the evidence that you love him is that you obey him. Did you catch that? That's the evidence. That's the proof. That's what James is saying. You say you have faith, I'll show you my faith by my works. He's not saying, as some wrongly misunderstood, oh, works is what's safe. No, he's just saying real faith will have works. Why? It's the natural response of gratitude. When you really see who God is and how he loves you and how he is for you, you want to obey him. 
And by the way, all his commands are good for you, like vitamins. None of his commands are hoops that he just wants you to jump through. So, oh, good, you did that. We'll try this one. No. All, you look at the Ten Commandments. They protect you. Only worship me, because he's the only true God. You worship anything else, you're going to be in a bad place. Uh, honor your marriage. That's a good one. Don't steal. That's, that's a good one. Don't kill people. Those are all things that protect you and others. So his commandments are good. His commandments are good. So obedience is a response of gratitude. So here's my question for you. If you, I just have met a lot of people that would say, yeah, I prayed a prayer to Jesus and asked him, you know, come in and, uh, but I, I haven't had any desire to read the word or really, you know, serve him or care about what he cares about. What's wrong? Well, probably what's wrong is your level of gratitude. Gratitude fuels your obedience. Without gratitude, obedience is just dead works and it will wear out. But if your obedience is fueled by gratitude, <clears throat> if you are thinking about who this God is and all that we have in Christ, like we're going to do right now in communion, that's what moves you to want to obey. That's your response. God, I, I want to serve you. I want to serve the church fellowship. I want to love my kids and my wife and my husband in a way that pleases you. I want to love my neighbor. That's obedience. And what you find is obedience becomes fun. At first it feels like an effort, but it becomes fun. Like I'm obeying Christ here using my gift, whether you like it or not. <laughs> but that's what I'm doing. I'm being obedient to his call on my life. But did I get up and go, oh man, I got to go preach at North Mountain, that you know, funky little church. Why I? Since Josh invited me to do this, I've been excited to come. Obedience is a joy when I'm in his purpose for my life, and that's what he wants for you. But obedience is the evidence of your faith. So if you're wondering, do I have faith? Do I know him? Well, are you finding yourself wanting to obey him? If not, then it's a fair question to go, what's wrong? Am I mad at God? Did I get hurt and so I've sealed my heart from him? That happens. It's happened to me. It's just normal. It's, life is hard. But don't stay there. Don't stay there. Lord, soften my heart. Give me a clean heart, O oh God. Lead me in paths of righteousness. Show me if there's any unclean way in me that I might honor you. That's what he wants to do. A heart of gratitude. So what have we said? What would I hope you'd take away today? This big, awesome, magnificent God wants to be known by you. That gives him joy. And who he is is a God of compassion and mercy and loving kindness, slow to anger. And that's never more clear than in Jesus. Jesus has come to me. All you who are weary, tired, I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's not religion. It's a life following this wonderful Savior. You know, the ark that they bring into the temple had the Ten Commandments in it. It no longer, for whatever reason, remember when David was moving it, it had that uh, uh, rod of Aaron's that had miraculously, even though it was dead wood, it budded and it sprung up green life. So they had that as a sign of God's power. And then they had a little jar of manna, the special supernatural food. But now it's just the law. And on top of the law is something called the mercy seat, where they would do offerings and sacrifices 
if the law is just in the ark and there's no mercy seat, then you and I are without hope because we cannot keep the law. What did Paul write in Romans 7? I, I, I was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, and then I read coveting and realized I was coveting everything. I was coveting that guy's popularity. I was coveting that degree. I was coveting that guy's wife. I just coveted, wanted everything, and he was crushed. The law will crush me because of my sin, but the book, the ark, is covered by the mercy seat. Isn't that a sweet picture? Well, who's the mercy seat for you and me? Jesus. Jesus. The law is too much, but with Jesus now, I'm, my sin is covered so the law can be good for me. can be good for me. And so we're going to remember the mercy seat work of Jesus, the cross right now, and take communion. You'll be passed a tray that'll have the wafer and a cup and take each as it's passed. And remember that they represent Jesus' body and blood given for you because Jesus wants you to know him. And so he opened the door to the holy place of this scary God who cannot even be approached because of his essence, his glory. Jesus says, now you can approach even the Father through me. Isn't that awesome? And it's that those truths that make me, as I take the elements, say, Jesus, I'm yours. Whatever you want to do with me, I'm yours. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for the cross and all that's uh, been cleansed and purified and covered for me. What a God you are. What a Savior. Minister to us, would you, Jesus, as we think about your great love for us. In Jesus' name we pray.